HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Two percent, two percent, two percent. The two percent's right over here. Oh, hey, Jenna. I didn't know you shopped here. Uh, yeah, anything to support local food, know what I mean? I definitely do. Though that's not the only thing you do in the name of Good Eats, obviously. Well, true. I also host Eating Matters every Wednesday at 5 p.m. where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. Be sure to tune in. All right, gotta get the plug in there, I get it. Yep, I'm hashtag shameless. You know what else you can do to support the local food community, right? Well, yeah. Make a donation to Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. That's right. And I gotta call you out on the whole local thing. What do you mean? Well, The Farm Report, A Taste of the Past, Japan Eats. Those are shows that take you around the country and the world. I'll give you that. So how can listeners give their support? It's pretty easy. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the big red heart in the top right corner. It's pretty easy from there. Thanks. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. For more information, visit wholefoodsmarket.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Some thought it was just a fad, or a hippie movement, that wouldn't last. But we'll learn how artisan food has made its mark, next on A Taste of the Past. And welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And I'd like to remind you all that A Taste of the Past is produced by Heritage Radio Network, a nonprofit, member-supported radio station devoted to all things food. Help keep Heritage Radio alive by becoming a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. It'll keep us all alive. Do it now. Thanks. And that is our monthly, I guess it's monthly, uh, no, it's more like annual or semi-annual fundraising plea. Don't often do that on this radio, but it's so important. We really need to keep it going. And today, just like just like the artisan food movement, we've got to keep it going. Um, I mentioned that we thought it was maybe just a fad or a hippie movement. Well, it all started, I guess, we'll find out. 
about industrialization and mass production kind of stripped, a, stripped foods of, of a lot of their original flavors. Think about bread, cheese, cookies, jams, even beer. But then there's been a growing movement over more than 50 years to get back to those flavors and restore the natural goodness of our foods. My guest today explored that movement and the artisans, we will say. That's the movement, the artisan movement, and how it changed our food. Patrick Koo started his career by cooking in restaurants, a Paris-trained chef. And he's the author of the James Beard award-winning Last Days of Oak Cuisine, The Coming of Age of American Restaurants, A History of the American Restaurant Business, among other books. He's been the L.A. Magazine food critic, restaurant critic, since 2000, and he has been the recipient of a James Beard MFK Fisher Distinguished Writing Award and the Foundation's Craig Claiborne Distinguished Restaurant Review Award. His work has been published in Gourmet, Bon Appetit, Food and Wine, Esquire, Salon. Uh, I guess the list could probably go on if I researched further, but I think those are pretty hefty names to mention. And I'm very happy to have him with us today from Los Angeles. He's on the phone joining us. Welcome, Patrick. Good morning, Linda. Uh, you know that I I have a feeling, but you'll have to you'll have to uh, qualify that for me. That this book exploring the artisan movement and artisans reclaiming American food is sort of a natural follow to the last days of oak cuisine. What do you say? <laughs> If I was very organized, yes, I would have said that it was all planned out as a sequel. Uh, I just happen to be interested in, in, in this subject, but it is a bit of a it is a bit of a follow up because um, um, it sort of steps back slightly to that era, long era of great American food, and um, sort of tries without being too academic about it, but still being as insightful as possible, um, tries to trace the loss of some of those flavors, uh, as you mentioned, um, through just rapid uh, transportation, through different ways of, um, of maintaining food stable over large distances. Uh, there were social trends. Um, let's not forget that um, all those homemade things required, um, you know, usually a woman's entire day to produce. So there was, you know, there was a few social benefits also of, of convenience. But ultimately, um, ultimately, there was a, a, a terrible loss of flavor of, uh, of any connection to place, any connection to tradition um, was destroyed. And um, so I wanted to see you know the the movement those 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 people in in the 60s and 70s who said you know I, I think i could pretty much figure out how to make cheese or i could figure out how to brew beer or so many of these foods and um and start out um uh, the artisan journey essentially all right i mean there of course there was this a big movement of homesteaders yeah. Um, prior to the whole artisan movement, and this back to the land, back to nature. I mean, <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, uh, I, I, the book does start with with some homesteaders in Michigan, and and um, you know, it's interesting to recall what they were 
uh, fleeing from, let's say. Um, there, there, there used to be a bumper sticker in, in the 60s that said, beware of the generals, uh, General Electric, <laughs> General Motors, and General Foods. You know, <laughs> General Foods was seen as sort of part of the sort of military-industrial complex in a way. That's but, right. <laughs> uh, um, it... it um, uh, so, so yes, as you say, the Homestead movement of, of the of the 60s, early 70s said, okay, we're going to separate ourselves from from mass consumption in society. Um, the land that they could buy um, was usually in, in terrible state of, uh, you know, it, 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 it had been over overused. So much of their um, first years as homesteaders was replenishing the soil. Um, so everybody had their sort of Carla Emery's Encyclopedia of Country Living and they had a couple of acres and they had you know, not much else. And um, so my book begins with, with, with one of those cases. Um, uh, Alice Birchinoff, um, who's now a legendary farmstead cheesemaker, um, but uh, then was a homesteader and, and, and uh, her husband Doug gave her a, a cow on their wedding day. And uh, it was a folksy kind of uh, wedding. There was, you know, bluegrass band and and kegs of of, of uh, homemade beer up on the porch. But they weren't expecting the delivery of the cow on on the wedding day, and particularly with a, with a full udder. So the cow had to be milked immediately. And um, you know, I, re- I uh, as I was researching the book, um, so many sto- stories became sort of just um, so vivid of, 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 of those times and certainly getting your cow on a wedding day and trying to figure out how, to, how do you milk a cow? You know, I mean, we, um, Alice didn't know how to milk a cow. She, she went to her copy of, uh, of, um, of the Encyclopedia of Country Living and had a few diagrams and, uh, and there she was on her wedding day milking a cow and uh, you know, then she had to figure out what to do with the milk, and and then once she made a sort of reasonable cheese, she had to figure out how to make a great cheese. Um, so it's all a sort of a natural progression in a way. But one of the things that really struck me about artisans, as I met more and more of them, uh, reporting this book, was this drive for excellence. Um, because um, yes, uh, you know, I, I can make a loaf of bread, but it's not a loaf of bread that's in any way excellent. Um, an artisan, um, they are driven by this idea of I can make it better, and um, it's a really, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a sort of passionate way of looking at life. Um, it's a motivation for them. It's very inspiring for those of us who, who have the benefit of tasting it. And and I, I do think that when we're tasting something great like bread or cheese or beer or bourbon, um, it's good to be reminded, my goodness, this represents a journey for somebody that had to teach themselves how to produce this so fantastically, and not just once off, but day after day after day after day. So there's that discipline of 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 um, uh, you know just repetition, the, the discipline of craft. Um, I found it very inspiring as I researched the book. Right, right, and it, and as you say, day after day. I mean that, and that leads into you know. Well, are you going to do this commercially? Are you going to sell? You know, are you going to sell your product, and not just within your commune of of friends and neighbors who live nearby? Right. So, indeed, then it you know it does become a business. And we'll get into the questions on that. But the 
you know, I, I think there's no question but that it started out somewhat as, well, it was that era of, as you mentioned, big business, you know, everyone was, you know, big business was a, a bad poison word. It was bad. Right. <laughs> and big government was poison. Yes. So it all kind of fell into place. I'm going to, you know, drop out and <laughs> I'm going to be self-sufficient and do my own thing. Well, it, then it took a while to to kind of take hold. I mean, people loved the, you know, tasting and loved the, you know, exploring with these artisan products but unfortunately a lot of them came at a high price as well so it was not an easy thing for people to to grasp hold of the notion that to get the best product that uses the best ingredients that uses the you know time-honored uh, yes. methods you got to pay yes. for it yes that, that there's sort of two um discussions, let's say, uh, going on about artisanal food at the moment. And they're sort of linked in a way. One is the discussion of price. Is it, well, let's be honest, the, the word that's used, is it elitist? I find it a little mm -hmm. strong as a word, yeah. but it does cost a little bit more. And, and the other argument is uh, the scale one. If, you, if, you, um, if you're producing a large volume, are you still an artisan? And this is the sort of only small is artisan Argument. Now, if you if you if you follow, you don't have to be a genius at economics to know that if you follow the only small is artisan, those things are going to cost far more per unit because you're selling far less. So uh, um, they're pretty much linked. Um, the I think the um, just to take them sort of in turns, um, the, um, the the price one. It, it, it does cost a little more. Um, what I sort of ask people to do is go a bit upriver from what the benefits of that price are. Um, and let's say in, in agricultural goods, um, their uh, artisanal um, uh, uh, ingredients are producing agricultural jobs in the land that are much more um, viable than just seasonal tourist jobs. They're allowing farmers to remain on the farm in the United States. Um, they are um, just recently, uh, I, I was interviewing um, two um, farms that cheesemakers in Vermont, they've just donated their 300 acres to the Vermont Land Trust to remain forever agricultural land. They're ready to retire. So, you know, I say, well, next time you're driving up to Champlain Valley and see, you know, have an unobstructed view of the Green Mountains, ask yourself, was it, was it worth the extra 50 cents per pound to not be looking at a, you know, at a housing subdivision right. there? Right, um, <laughs> And in, 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 in urban areas, um, artisanal food is revitalizing American cities. And I, just, I don't just mean on the coast. I mean, you know, I went to Milwaukee and right in the Rust Belt and a, and a previously industrial area called Walker's Point full of warehouses and sort of cobbled streets. And that had been sort of empty for 25 years. And now it's the most exciting part of Milwaukee, full of distilleries, breweries, a creamery, a, a chocolate maker, coffee roasters, full of people strolling around. And so it's easy to knock and say, oh, it's too expensive. But... You know, it's, it's keeping farmers on the farm. It's keeping American cities vital, and these are some of the sort of secondary benefits of artisanal food. That's right. Uh, well, but before we talk more about um, 
the process and how big is too big. Yeah. Um, let's step back a little bit and and talk about the flavors. And as you title the book, the um, finding. Oh, and I did. I'm sorry, I did not mention the name of the book. How? how <laughs> the new. You've written a book all about this. I said you explored the topic, but I didn't mention the book. It's called Finding the Flavors We Lost from Bread to Bourbon: How Artisans Reclaimed American Food. And that's what I want to step back to is the flavors, finding the flavors we lost. How did we lose these flavors? Do we blame technology? Um, <laughs> Do we, you know, and what is technology? Well, the, Efficiency? Right. The technology argument is a very interesting one, and it's one I tried to trace in the book because t- today technology is, is in, in food terms, it's sort of a negative, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, people much rather craft than technology in today's food. Right. But... Um, but tech, the idea of technology is central to to, to food, and um, um, the grist mill in in that was grinding the corn to be turned into that would be eventually become whiskey. You know, a, 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 a wheel in a river turned by water power um, through cogs that would turn a huge uh, stone mill mill wheel. That's technology. Um, the olive press in you know, back in, 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 in the eastern Mediterranean 2,000 years before the Common Era. That was technology. That was using the, the idea of, 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 of a lever and a fulcrum to create pressure to, to extract uh, olive oil. Technology. Mm-hmm. The, the, the cider press in colonial America um, the screw press, uh, you know, l- lowering, lowering um, the weight through 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 two screws on either side of the of the press. Technology. So I had to I had to sort of make my make my peace with with technology and say, well, how did technology become a negative thing? And I, sort of the, the the understanding of technology is efficiency. There's always a quicker way to do things. There's always a faster way. There's always less pressure required to extract more. And what happened was a combination of the efficiency of technology if gradually getting to the, the time required in artisanal foods. And, it's, and, and producers of food started penciling out time. Let's take bread. Uh, a, a, a great loaf of bread might require 12, 24 hours, uh, you know, m- between mixing and proofing if you're using natural leavening. Now, a commercial baker today can get a loaf of bread from, from mixing bowl to, to cellophane wrapper in 35 minutes. Uh, they can very well put artisan on, the, <laughs> on, the, on, on their packaging, but there's nothing artisanal about that because they're not respecting the time required for that food. And the the the, um, uh, the the time is sort of one for me one of the definitions of artisanal food. Are you are you allowing that bread the amount of time it needs to rise and proof? Are you allowing your 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 cheese the months that it requires to really get its natural rind um, you know developed? Um, each food has different time elements, but. In, um, um, uh, so sort of technology pencils out that time requirement, and then you have to remember that um, transportation in this country, you know, in the late 1800s, um, was completely transforming our idea of of 
of speed, of, um, of distance. Um, markets were suddenly vast distances away from where food was produced. Um, you know, let's, let's not forget that it was the railway trusts um, in the late 19th century that even divided the country into time zones. Right. It, wasn't the, it wasn't the government that divided the country into time zones. It was railway companies who needed the efficiency of knowing uh, times at different stops. So there was the speed of, excuse me, there was the speed of transportation that really severed any connection from uh, time, from uh, place of production and place of consumption. And, um, and gradually these sort of things just started to work on the American uh, um, way of eating. And of course, let's not forget brand loyalty. Um, there was this, um, um, the idea of purity, um, uh, particularly about 1890 to 1906, when the Pure Food and Drug Act was passed, was sort of established as an ideal. And um, because there was a lot of adulteration in particularly urban foods. Right. So, well, and also, you know, around the time that refrigeration was coming into being, too, there was, you know, there was a lot of spoiled food. There was a yes, lot of exactly. Food. Right. Exactly. I mean, um, Butchers essentially would spray formaldehyde on their on their meat if it didn't sell, and just sell it the next day because it masked the smell of of putrefaction, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of mankind's you know, warning against not eating something. Um, so the idea of purity started to emerge as a sort of narrative in American food, and. Well, who could produce purity? Well, large companies. And how did large companies establish uh, their brand? Well, they said, well, buy our little packaged, um, we will package it individually in sealed containers. So there goes the era of, you know, the grocery store where everything was measured out by the grocer from, from barrels. Um, and we, our experts, will guarantee the purity. So this is the era of you know, the, the invented seals of approval and the invented expert like uh, Prudence Penny and Marion Manners. <laughs> These are the real names right. of the people who would instruct us. And, um, and then this whole tradition of um, uh, the, the loss of transmitting a recipe, which uh, I've done a lot of archival research, and, you know, I would find these old... Um, they were called receipt books that women would keep in their kitchens. And, um, you know, there would be like the back of an envelope of somebody who'd given them a recipe or uh, the recipes had Mrs. Uh, Lobal's, uh, you know, biscuits or everything was very personalized, but it's, it slowly sort of started to fade. And one of the sort of ways I, I, I traced that was in what's called charitable cookbooks, which were... Um, uh, cookbooks that the churches usually would put together with recipes from members of the community for 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 a com- common cause. Right. And um, the charitable cookbooks of the 1870s, 1880s, they were completely regional. Um, they were completely uh, local. They were completely seasonal. I mean, you really sense the American table. I mean, I just think of the relishes the, that would be put on the on the table, crab apple relish and all sorts of chutneys, all sorts of ketchups. You know, it wasn't just uh, tomato ketchup, all sorts of ketchups. Um, uh, preserved foods, uh, uh, just to give it that little nice acidic tang to a meal. Um, those all, over about 30-year period, disappear. Right. Um, um, 
recipes that were once so vital. I'm, I'm thinking of a of a recipe in the Vermont Tem- Ladies Temperance Union uh, charitable cookbook in 1895, which was uh, uh, da- wilted dandelion greens with soda uh, cracker gravy and uh, boiled veal. And when, when, uh, when, when I read that, I said, my goodness, if that was on any contemporary restaurant menu, you know, that would be fantastic. The, 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 you, you, can, you can taste the hominess. You can taste the kind of tradition here. Well, all those cookbooks by, by, by 1950 were full of five-can casserole recipes. That's right. You know? That's right. A lot of um, the dirty word, processed foods. And, of course, Pure Food and Drug Act came into that, too. I mean, we wanted shelf life. We wanted to go to the supermarket and buy something out of season. And, you know, so, so we had a lot of additives in there. We're, we're going to talk about um, how the movement took hold and um, and some of the ways that they indeed do use technology but not become too big. I'm talking with Patrick Koo. We'll be back after a short break. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market, America's healthiest grocery store with more than 400 locations throughout the United States. Download the Whole Foods Market app on your smartphone for recipes, sales, information, and digital coupons. Or visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store closest to you. Hi, and welcome back. I'm on the phone with Patrick Koo from L.A., um, who's done a lot of research and has written a, a very readable book, interesting book on finding the flavors we lost from bread to bourbon how artisans reclaimed american food and and patrick we were talking about um earlier about technology and and different um reasons industrialization why flavors sort of uh went by the wayside in place of in place of uh um what we want now and and get it this week next week but as far as the artisanal movement i mean how we talked about how, you know, the question, and you asked it often in your book, is how big is too big? <laughs> well, um, that is very much the, 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 the argument of defining artisanal food today. And we're all used to those kind of language signals that tell us something is small. I mean, small batch. It, 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 it's so generalized now that one doesn't really know what what small batch even means anymore. It's sort of just tossed in as a description. Um, in 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 brewing, um, you know, there's 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 not just micro brewing. There's nano brewers. <laughs> so they're <laughs> they're making. So the whole the argument. Uh, one part of it seems to be. Um, uh, we're tiny. This is small production, therefore we're good. And I get where they're coming from because because big food was what ruined American flavors. Right. So if you define yourself against big, you're sort of saying um, um, we're the opposite of that. So I completely understand what they're saying. But in in in, in, in my book, uh, uh, finding the flavors we lost, we, I, I was I, I sort of wanted to step back a bit further and into what the artis, artisanal as a as a word meant, artisan. And 
you know, time and time again, I found it um, long before artisan meant small, it meant independent. To be an artisan was a way of navigating the world in uh, as an independent individual. And, um, you know, the, 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 the coppersmith in colonial Philadelphia was an artisan and was independent in in in, in his in the, his life the the farmstead um, pioneer woman out on the plain who was churning extra pounds of butter so she could sell it at the market she so for additional income for her family that was a means of independence um, so I sort of wanted to reframe what an artisan is and that independence requires sales. Uh, you know, I always say, if, if you're not selling it, it's a hobby. Right. And, <laughs> and sales are part of this, and, and, and we can own that. Um, and so, so then the question becomes, well, how, yes, how, how much can you sell? How much can you grow while retaining your um, integrity, let's say? Um, and so that it becomes it becomes a slightly different argument because it becomes an ar- an argument about quality. If your quality is good, if it's unchanged, I think you should be able to grow as big as as big as you can maintain that quality. Because one of the what I find inspiring things about artisanal food is is sort of this arc that it has undergone from from a parallel way of eating in the 60s and 70s to a parallel economy today. And a lot of artisans are, are providing jobs, opportunities, careers, health benefits, all sorts of things that are positive. And it's 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 the sales that are uh, that are allowing that. Now we don't have to be innocent about this. There's also a lot of lot of large breweries who who have sort of sidelines pretending that they're tiny breweries. <laughs> so we have to be watchful to sort of an abuse of this. But I think it's, it oversimplifies the argument to say, well, if you're not small, you're not an artisan, and um, it, it gets very complicated very fast. If, if, you know, if you're not small, then you're not indie. And if you're not indie, well, then you've gone mainstream. And if you've gone mainstream, you've sold out. And you've sold out. Well, you're you're you know you're no longer an artisan. Uh, you know, for me, it's it's reducing the argument to very very simplistic uh, terms. Yeah, it's interesting. I saw I was reading about a cheese company, and, and no, it was a bread company. Um, you think bread, cheese? You mentioned in the beginning. You know, usually bread, cheese, chocolate, coffee. Yeah. Beer. Um, it was a bread company, and and. And they called themselves, they said, it's artisan bread with a technology twist or a twist of technology. <laughs> and I'm thinking, mm, okay. Well, they had a whole bank of a new set of ovens. And, you know, so it wasn't a wood-fired oven yeah. in the backyard. No, well, they were, you know, they were modern steel ovens and lots of them. And they could, so they could work with a, a group of people still hand Forming mm. the loaves and letting the yeast, you know, um, yeah. proof on its own and rise, and but yet they were using all these modern ovens to bake at once. So they sort of felt that they had to give a nod to technology. Yeah, <laughs> well, I think that's a, that's a great example, Linda. Uh, it actually reminds me of, of a conversation I had with Chad Robertson of Partine Bakery in, in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and you know, he st- when he started baking. He started as he, 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 it was a total re, um, rejection of technology. Um, he was in his sort of that moment that all artisans have, which is it's them and the product, and they have to figure out how to make it. Um, he was in coastal northern California, 
And he said, for a while, I was even mi- mixing the dough in a wooden trough, because that was the most traditional way of mixing dough. And he said, you know, I eventually realized, you know, I was making what was already a hard thing to do that much harder. And um, uh, so he, he, he sort of rejected the, the wooden trough approach to it. And today, his, well, Tartines, a great, incredible bakery. and Very well known. Yes. Yeah, very well known, and it's, and, and it's growing. And... The last conversation I had with him was, you know, he he, he was so excited about a, a, a stainless steel uh, mills for the flour, and um, you know, I said, well, isn't wouldn't the stone uh, uh, mill millstone be the most traditional? And he said, y- yeah, if you want, you know, a three-ton thing in the middle of your floor that you can't move. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way to go. But he said, the flour that I'm getting from this new technology of milling is so fantastic. The thing can be broken down so it's not taking up the entire floor. Um, it's, it's producing, um, you know, it's buying time for me, valuable time that we bakers can put into other things. Because, you know, there is such a thing as optics and, and you know, a, a, a baker rushing around opening and closing windows to, to, to figure out the humidity in their baking room. Well, you know, if you don't have any other methods, that's what you have to do. But there are more efficient ways of running a bakery. And what I really find exciting about Tartine is this sort of incorporating real technological developments that help the quality um, into the process. And um, when I hear stories like that of artisans doing that, it really excites me because, I, you know, we're, we're, it's, 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 it's escaping the kind of folksy aspects that this can very quickly take on. It's, right. it's, 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 a, it's completely attuned to developments. It, it can, it can uh, choose what technologies to benefit, what technologies to reject, and it can produce incredible bread, in this case, for a growing number of people. What does that mean? It can lower the price. It can, it can democratize quality. I mean, that is very much the next step in this, in this discussion. Right. Well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, that I think we have, many of us um, as consumers, have embraced this whole um, movement. It's no longer the romantic uh, yes. things we look at for on packaging, like made in Vermont, you know, with yes. a little heart yes. around it, or handcrafted, handmade, you know, craft <laughs> artisan. But by the same token... Um, there has been some abuse in those terms as well by yeah. by big business itself, right? Yes, yes. Well, the whole look of um, artisanal ingredients is its own sort of world um, because um, um, big companies have big budgets for for packaging, and they can make things look look folksy, real nice. Uh, right. The the kind of um, a heavier paper, the letterpress font, the twine wrapping. Um, um, they can make things look more artisanal than, than a real artisan. Right. <laughs> Ma- know, made with love doesn't necessarily mean um, handmade. So, <laughs> yeah, so we have to remain alert to that. So that's why 
my uh, I, I sort of uh, ask people if, if they you know if I'm ever asked to to, to 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 define it to get away from first thing you have to reject is packaging because packaging is so easy to mimic and just because it looks artisanal doesn't mean anything so that's for instance why time um, is so crucial you say well is a big company, the first, you know, after they figured out the packaging, the, the next thing they're going to do is how do we make this faster? Um, so that is not an artisan question. An artisan question is never going to be how do we make this faster because they realize flavor is in time is you know is made by 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 the process, uh, um, the the time it takes to, for that process to complete itself. So. Um, I, I always ask people, how much time did that did that take to make? Did they give it the the, the, the did they allow it to mature as it as whatever that food requires? Um, is there is there an element of the skilled human hand in it? Because yes, we, we can allow you know machines into the process, but also we can't we shouldn't forget. I feel that. Somebody went to the trouble of of, of learning this with, with with their hands. The intelligence of an artisan's hands struck me time and time again. Um, uh, you know, a, a great cheesemaker, they they can look at a vat of of cheese and know exactly when to cut the curd, um, just by just by how just by how the surface is rippling. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have to touch it. A baker doesn't. You know, when a bread when a when a when a loaf is proofing, they know exactly the moment to to give it that all important all important uh, slash, um, you know that that will determine how it will look once it um, comes out of the oven. Um, uh, the intelligence of an artisan's hands, I feel, have to be um, part of of our definition, and I, I do think that that. Um, does it speak to some form of tradition? And I think that the, the links that artisanal food is recreating are are key. Um, you know, uh, I, I've seen artisanal Doritos. You know, well, we can we can we can laugh at that and say, well, that's never going to be artisanal. But I've also seen all sorts of like bubblegum flavored artisan vodka and you say well <laughs> if if even if they allowed the time that this required is it is it reconnecting us to yeah. something in our own heritage um and then it just becomes a marketing term right. so um the packaging even as 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 wonderful as some of these large producers have made their packaging look um uh, uh it's got nothing to do with whether the food is an artisanal food. That's true. I, I think that the movement has had a tremendous effect. I think it is pretty well cemented in our society today. And a huge swath of the of the population has become more concerned, or even say obsessed with some groups, with taste. Mm. And... Um, and I'm saying this is a good thing because they're more concerned with what they well the health and I think that also um, brought about the whole health movement as well health conscious movement concerned with what they put in their bodies mm. and there's also that what's on my plate where does it come from uh, never before did we ask questions like that you know a plate of food was put in front of you you didn't say oh where did this meat come from or you know who you know whose whose farm is the lettuce from you know now people are asking these questions 
Yes. I, that's interesting. I think that's all part of this movement that is that is taking uh, taking root and. Uh, um, a lot of it has to do, well, in, 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 in the particular um, subject that you're mentioning, you know, native uh, fermentations, like fermentations based on yeast that are in the, in the ingredient itself. And um, that is sort of a meeting point between health concerns and artisan craft. I'm thinking of pickling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, pickling... Um, is, is sort of this natural, let's say, the, the kosher pickle, the, the, the push cart market kosher pickle. It was very much a natural process, um, um, and it was very much an example of added value for, uh, for an immigrant community. Um, the, the push cart merchant could buy um, uh, um, cucumbers. Um, they put it in a brine, um, salt and water brine, traditional salt and water brine, um, that suppressed um, any pathogenic activity. It allowed lactobacillus to um, um, provide a, a fermentation, uh, creating um, lactic acid, and suddenly your cucumbers were preserved in this cloudy brine, the traditional kosher pickle brine, um, um, through a completely natural process. And um, then the, 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 the cucumbers that had cost, uh, you know, five cents, the, the, the merchant could now sell them for 25 cents at the, at the market. So added value, going back to the idea of, of, of independence in, 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 in artisan foods. Um, but of course, this idea of natural yeast is really very much at the forefront of the artisanal discussion because there's naturally leavened breads, there's uh, beers, um, uh, vinegars. Um, um, there's all these sort of processes that a skilled artisan can sort of control and in, for a delicious result. And um, uh, it, it's very, since so little needs to be added, and really it's only a natural process that needs to be controlled, it's additionally extremely, an extremely helpful way of eating. That's right. That's yeah. right. Well, we have, before we run out of time, there is, of course, in talking about the cost question, you're the perfect person to ask this to, and that is that it's not all just shopping at the market. But how has this whole movement affected restaurant menus and what's, what's on the menu, not only in terms of cost, but what, what chefs are choosing to do? Well, chefs, of course, today are choosing to make a lot of these things themselves. And uh, you know, I think part of what started me on, down this path was when I was having um, a, you know, house-cultured butter with, with naturally leavened rolls appeared at the restaurant table when I was, when I was eating. And I, and, and, and I just couldn't get my mind around, why is a chef making butter? Uh, I mean, this is 10, 10, 12 years ago. I sort of imagined, uh, I imagined it a homesteading skill, you know, from, from way back. And, of course, the reason they were making it, is it was additional flavor. It was um, the, the, the culturing of the cream allowed a certain tanginess to, to uh, uh, reveal itself in, in, in the butter that was you know, incre- a great, great addition to, 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 the, to the meal. But chefs have been instrumental in establishing um, uh, artisanal um, uh, goods. Um, 
First, because they, if they put an artisan's name on their menu, it was such a validation for that artisan. You know, let, let's not forget a cheesemaker is somebody up on a farm somewhere up some valley. You know, they're not down in the in the in the in the city necessarily uh, promoting their stuff. They're up there milking cows and making cheese. So right. it's it's a great definition, a great um, uh, endorsement, I should say, of that artisan. And secondly. I mean, I don't mean to harp on the economics, but the economics are key. Um, if a chef buys one or two wheels of cheese, um, that's you know that's two months of, of trips to the to the farmers' markets for that person selling tiny wedges to to individuals. You know, all of a sudden they've sold two wheels. Um, that's a huge um, economic um, benefit for that person, and. Um, and it's interesting now that chefs having sort of helped promote the artisanal movement are themselves discovering, um, you know, in so many ways, uh, uh, the benefits of artisanal foods. You know, to go to a restaurant today is to have the house-cultured butter, the rolls, the, the incredible salumi, you know, Italian-cured meats, maybe uh, ricotta, um, the the bar person is probably making bitters for the cocktails. You know, everybody's on the, the soda. Somebody's making, you know, old style soda pop and bottling it. The vinegar is undoubtedly, you know, Orleans method, old style cask aged vinegar. I mean, the, the 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 restaurant experience in this country is is sort of completely permeated with an. an an artisanal understanding of food. Absolutely. Well, it's it's so such an interesting time to be to be buying food and looking at food and uh, and and learning about food. Yeah. Because this is yeah, and it's and it's returned us not you can't say not to another time the way they were doing it. It's a whole new take on on handcrafted items and and homemade items and it's just i think it's very exciting and i'm very pleased that you wrote this book i think that for um for people to learn more about the artisan movement and the fact that they if they didn't know that our flavors were lost and it'll maybe inspire them to go out and taste some of these new flavors but but patrick thank you so much for sharing with me today it's and patrick's book again is called finding the flavors we lost from bread to bourbon how artisans reclaimed american food Thanks, Patrick Koo. Thank thank you so much, Linda. And thank you for listening. This has been A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.